Uh, hi, I'm Hannah. I'm reading the Bible for you today. We're going to be reading from 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. So if you've got the church Bible, that's 100, page 149. 1,049. There we go. Page 1,049. <laughs> Paul, Silvanius, and Timothy, to the church of Thessalonians in God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from our God, Father, and Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, and rightfully so, since your faith is flourishing and the love each one of you has for another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you among, the, the God, among God's churches, about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring. It is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you are also suffering. Since it, was, since it is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to, relieve, and to relieve you who are afflicted along with us, this will take place at the revelation of Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels. When he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God, and those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from God's presence and from his glorious strength. On that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at by all those who believed, because our testimony among you was believed. In view of this, we will always pray for you that our God will make you worthy of his calling and by his power fulfill, you, fulfill your every desire to do good and your work produced by faith, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you, and you by him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, good afternoon. If I haven't met you before, my name is Chris. I'd love to meet you over a coffee after church. Today we start our new series in 2 Thessalonians. Please keep your Bibles open. Um, I just want to uh, spend a little bit of time bringing us up to speed in 2 Thessalonians as we start our new series. You see, some events in life have the power to change everything. Picture this, it's April 14th, 1912. At 10 p.m., the Titanic struck an iceberg and began to sink. I won't spoil it for you. Um, one of the story goes is that a frightened woman was sitting in a lifeboat as it was about to be lowered down, and she remembered that there was something she needed to get from her room. She begged those in the boat for permission, and she was given three minutes to get something and return, or she would be left behind. So the woman ran across the deck, which was already sloping at a dangerous angle. She raced through the gambling room, and she ignored the chips that were floating in the water. She ran into her room and ignored the money in her purse. She went to the dresser and ignored the jewellery and her diamond rings. Then she reached across the shelf above her bed and grabbed three oranges. And with those three oranges, she ran back to the lifeboat and was saved. 
Now, I'm sure your head is filled with all these questions about oranges, right? Like, uh, what is she going to do with the oranges? Uh, you know, do they make cocktails on lifeboats in the Titanic? Uh, well, I take it that she wanted to take some food with her, but forget about the oranges for a second, because here's my point. There are some events in life that have the power to change everything. 30 minutes earlier, that woman would never have dreamed of walking past poker chips or a purse full of money or jewellery and diamonds. But when you are in a lifeboat and you don't know where your next meal is coming from, now suddenly everything is different. There are some events in life that change everything. And there is no greater event than the return of Jesus Christ. The return of Jesus changes everything. The fact that Jesus will return means this present creation will vanish with a roar and a new creation will take its place. It's an event that we must prepare for. And in a nutshell, that is the central truth of 2 Thessalonians. The return of Jesus changes everything. It changes your perspective, it changes your values, even your priorities, so that you may stand firm in your faith until Jesus returns. And this is so important in the book of 2 Thessalonians because the church in Thessalonica was a church in trouble. We read this in chapter 2 verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and us being gathered to him, we ask you brothers and sisters not to be easily upset or troubled either by prophecy or by a message or by a letter supposedly from us, alleging that the Lord, the day of the Lord had already come. In Thessalonica, false teachers have been teaching that Jesus has already come. And therefore, the Christian should expect the future glory and blessings today. And this disconnect between what they expect from life and what they experience is making their faith fragile. And so Paul writes to them to set the, letter, the, the record straight. Jesus hasn't returned. He is coming soon. And the return of Jesus changes everything. You see, 2 Thessalonians reminds us about something that we often forget. That in the most beautiful of ways, the return of Jesus is where we find comfort. It's where we find hope. It's where we find strength to stand firm for Jesus. We find comfort today because it helps us to know the times that we're living in and where we fit into God's eternal plan. We find hope here because the glory and joy of our internal inheritance means that suffering is not meaningless today. And we find strength because it is not our effort by which we stand firm for Jesus. It's God's effort that he will keep us and sustain us until Jesus returns. So over the next four weeks, two Thessalonians will show us how the return of Jesus changes everything. We're going to be looking at standing firm in our suffering, standing firm in truth, standing firm in glory, and standing firm together as a community. It's my prayer that as we consider the return of Jesus, we would find comfort and strength to stand firm in our faith as we wait for him to return. So that's where we're headed over the next four weeks. But how about I pray and then we can jump into chapter one. Please pray with me. 
Heavenly Father and gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. And we thank you for the, sh- the, the fixed and certain hope of Jesus' returns. And so as we think about that this afternoon, we pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding in your word so that your word may change our perspective and our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter one today, standing firm in suffering. Friends, I wonder, have you ever had to suffer for your faith? Have you ever been ridiculed or embarrassed or harassed for what you believe in? Have you ever had to make sacrifices for Jesus and felt the pain of going against your friends and family? Have you ever made to be to feel uncomfortable or unsafe or even bullied for being a Christian? In those moments, what will encourage you to keep standing firm for Jesus? That's the big question of chapter one. Uh, I ask this because with the many promises of blessing in the Christian life, there comes an unexpected promise in 2 Timothy chapter 3. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I'll say that again. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. On top of many life's hardships, we have the added challenge that following Jesus is deeply offensive to the people around us. The deep hostility to the claims of Jesus Christ leads to an even deeper hostility to those who follow him. And so when your faith is fragile, what will encourage you to stand firm for Jesus? I ask this because the world, in a, the, the world that we live in teaches us to avoid suffering. In the 21st century, the world disciples us to moralise pain. Now, there's no doubt that causing others to suffer is wicked, but our individualistic culture teaches us that the greatest evil is when we experience suffering. Uh, in so- if something causes me discomfort or pain or sacrifice or suffering, then it's wrong and everything else must come second. And so our culture teaches us that this painlessness is a new moral standard and it's the only great truth. Everything must be avoided if suffering is involved. Uh, So what happens when we, as followers of Jesus, live in this culture and suffer for the sake of following Jesus? What happens when we're ridiculed at work for speaking about Jesus? Will we be no longer tempted to speak about him? If we're mocked by our friends for not joining in on their sin, will we be tempted to not obey Jesus? Or worse, will we be tempted to think that God is unjust and unfair because we suffer for his son and then walk away from Jesus? Paul Grimman in his book, Suffering Well, gives us a solution. He says, the great danger of Christian living in the West is not a physical death at the hand of persecutors, but the slow spiritual death of a thousand tiny compromises, crouched at the door, waiting to devour our hearts. And the saddest predicament of our age is at the moment we need it most, we have given up 
a robust theology of belonging to Christ and suffering for him. Paul Grimman argues that when we need to stand firm for Jesus, we shouldn't moralise our pain or run away from it. Instead, we need a bigger picture of God and what it means to follow Jesus. And friends, that's what Paul gives um, uh, the Thessalonians in chapter 1. Have a look at verse 5 with me. He says in verse 5, It is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you are also suffering. Paul wants them to see that in their current struggles, uh, he wants them to see their current struggles in the light of Christ's return. You see, the return of Jesus changes everything and it changes how we view suffering today. And so he gives them three fresh perspectives. In verse 5, it's a, a fresh perspective on the present judgment of God. In verses 6 and 7, it's the future judgment of God. And in verses 9 and 10, it's the future glory of God. And they're going to be our three points. So let's start with the first, the present judgment of God. Uh, in the holding house, we are Bronco supporters. Not those people who live up in Queensland. The Denver Broncos, we watch the NFL. That is, we all watch the games together. We all wear the jerseys together. Mel even asks me on Monday, how did our, how did our team go on the weekend? Maybe that's just to, you know, give me a bit of comfort. Uh, that is, uh, we wear our jerseys because we belong to the Broncos in some weird kind of way. Paul goes on to say in chapter 1 that suffering teaches us where we belong. Have a look at verse 4 with me. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you among God's churches, about your perseverance in faith in all persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring. It's clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you are suffering. Uh, In one Thessalonians 3, Paul has fervently asked God to grow their love for one another and to keep them holy and blameless until Jesus returns. And so for this group of Christians that are young in their walk and small in their faith, sorry, in their love and fragile in their faith, God has miraculously answered this prayer. Paul says it's amazing. He boasts to God because growing in love And perseverance is a spiritual work that can only be achieved by the power of God. And then Paul sheds some unexpected light um, on their suffering. That's in verse 5. Did you pick it up? That it's clear evidence of God's righteous judgment. The evidence is the suffering they are experiencing. And the judgment is not the future eternal judgment of God, but his present-day judgments, what we might call his will or his divine plan. So that is to say, persecution is evidence that God's plan is just and right. Paul wants the Thessalonians to know that suffering for Jesus is not meaningless. It teaches them that God's plan has a purpose. Why? Verse 5 because they will be counted worthy of God's kingdom. Persecution assures them that they belong to God and his kingdom today. 
Uh, 1 Peter 4 delves deeper into this issue. He says, if you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of God rests, the spirit of glory in God rests on you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. 1 Peter reaffirms this truth. The suffering, that suffering for Jesus is a confirmation of your union with Jesus. It's proof of the Spirit's present. It's proof that they belong to God. And so they should consider them blessed because suffering for Jesus reminds them that they belong to Jesus. You see, it's only those who belong to Jesus who will suffer for him. And I take it this perspective of suffering feels strange because it grinds against our view of God. We tend to think that if God is sovereign and God is good, then why would his people be suffering and why would they be afflicted for believing in Jesus? You see, the danger is that we are tempted to allow our present-day struggles to redefine who we think God is. That if I'm struggling, that if I'm suffering, that if I'm afflicted and in trouble, then that means that God is no longer good. He is no longer sovereign and he is no longer in control. But the new perspective that Paul provides here today is that it's completely the opposite. That when we suffer, God is in control. That when we are shunned by those around us, we are welcomed by God. That when we are ridiculed, God shows us honour. We are no longer outsiders. We are citizens of God's kingdom. You see, the message is clear that we cannot serve two masters. For the Thessalonians, they cannot serve Jesus and bow the knee to Caesar. And similarly, we can't serve Jesus and bow our knee to society. Being ostracized and ridiculed for our faith is not a sign of exclusion. On the contrary, it reminds us that we are included in God's family and his kingdom, which challenges us to keep standing firm for Jesus. Friends, can I ask, are you trying to serve two masters, God and this world? Where does your view of God and his plan for his people need to change so that you may get a bigger and better picture of God, so you may have a much more robust understanding of what it means to follow Jesus? It is an uncomfortable truth, but an important one, that God is good. What Paul does next is really interesting. After helping seeing their current suffering as part of belonging to God's kingdom, he then lifts their eyes to the future justice of God, which is our second point. Um, <clears throat> on Thursdays, I teach Year 6 SRE at Calair Public School. It's a blast. I'd love it if you come and join me one day. Um, uh, my Year 6 kids love talking about all the important things like asking what my dog is up to and, you know, um, uh, uh, um, what the uh, the Broncos have been doing. 
A couple of few weeks ago, we were talking about the things that are unfair and unjust in this world. And one student asked, why does God judge people? Doesn't that make him unfair? It's a great question, isn't it? It's a great question because here is a young person who deeply, who is wrestling deeply with who God is. It's also a great question because it reflects what we speculate or imagine God to be. In our minds, we imagine the, God, the judgment of God makes him unjust. But Paul says something different. Have a look at verse 6. Since it's, since it's just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted along with us, this will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels. Now we need to be clear, Paul is not saying that Christians should repay evil for evil and he's not saying that we should delight in God's vengeance. In the face of persecution, Paul is reminding the Thessalonians of God's unwavering justice. For, perse for, for persecuted Christians who feel like a rubber band that's being stretched beyond their limit, when Jesus returns, they will be relieved from their suffering before the rubber band breaks. And for those who do evil to Christians, they will be judged. They will be judged for afflicting God's people. Why? Have a look at verse 8. When he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. You see, the issue of judgment is not how many times you go to church. The issue is not whether you think you're nice and worthy. The real issue is how you respond to the message of Jesus Christ and having a relationship with God. You see, to reject that message is to reject God himself. And for those who have afflicted Christians and those who have rejected God in this life, they will be given the very thing that they want. For all eternity, separation from God. And this is a demonstration of God's justice. You see, we live in a moral universe. This means actions have consequences. And those who do evil must be held to account. And God holding people to account for their actions teach us that God is a God of justice. His actions of justice demonstrate a concern and affection for the people he created. And in particular, it shows a deep compassion and love for his children who suffer. You see, the return of Jesus changes everything. It brings us comfort. Because while we know suffering for Jesus is part of God's eternal plan, the end of suffering is also a part of its plan that there is a fixed day that when Jesus will return. And so there is great comfort in knowing that the suffering of this world will come to an end. When I hear about the hardship of friends and how they have been suffering for Jesus, uh, I want to grab them and hold them and say, the persecution will end tomorrow. <clears throat> but friends... There is no comfort in simple platitudes that are not true, but there is real and lasting comfort in knowing 
that Jesus has promised that he will return and bring the suffering of this world to an end. It gives us a quiet confidence to keep trusting in Jesus and standing firm for him. Now, you may be here today still investigating Jesus, you know, figuring out if he's someone you can trust. And you might be thinking, this is really uncomfortable, all this talk of judgment. And so I want to say two things just quickly. First, we are so glad that you are here. If you have any questions or you want to grill me about anything I've said today, I would love to chat to you. I'll even buy you a a free coffee from the coffee car. Second, consider this. If you've ever admired a magnificent diamond, a gemstone in a museum or in a magazine or in a photo, you'll know that you can only see its brilliance against a black backdrop. And friends, you'll never see the beauty of Jesus until you see it against the black backdrop of his judgment. The judgment of God may feel uncomfortable, but it shows us that God is just, that God loves humanity, and he has provided a way for us to return to him through his son, through the gospel. If you have any questions, I'd love to chat to you more about this. So we've spent plenty of time looking at the dark cloth this afternoon. <laughs> Let's look at the diamond. Yeah, You see, it's not just the future judgment that encourages us. It's the future glory. You see, with all this persecu- talk of persecution and judgment, you might be thinking, what's the point? Following Jesus just like sounds like a trip to the dentist every day for every week for the rest of your life. Where does it get better? <laughs> Have a look at verse 10. On that day, when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at those by all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. The day is the day of the Lord. And as we've seen, it means judgment for some. But the encouragement to keep following Jesus here for the Thessalonians is it also means glory for God's people. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, it was the perfect, sinless Son of God dying in our place and when he died he experienced the judgment on wrath of God on our behalf which means for those who trust in Jesus and ask him to forgive them of their sin the day of the Lord the day of the judgment happened at the cross of Jesus Christ and so what awaits you in future is not judgment but the glory of God not just marvelous marvelousness and praising Jesus but also sharing in his glory. Uh, This is what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 14. He says, He called you uh, to this through your gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to look at this a little bit more in our third talk. But uh, Jen Wilkin, a Christian author from Texas, puts it this way. She says, Sharing in God's glory primarily involves becoming more like Jesus in the new creation. You see, what awaits us as we suffer for Jesus in the new creation? We will receive a glorious body, one without sin or sickness or decay. We will be in the presence of God for all eternity and will no longer be subject to earthly rulers and their afflictions and we will rule the new creation perfectly 
under the rule of Christ. You see, to share in the glory of God is to receive everything that God has promised us through Jesus Christ. And on that final day, when we see Jesus revealed as God's king in all his glory, when his kingdom comes all in its fullness, we will see that suffering for Jesus has been worth it. And it's that future hope, that future picture of what we will experience that gives us confidence to keep following Jesus today. Because we know the end, we can have confidence to stand firm for Jesus today. It's kind of like knowing what happens at the end of a grand final while you're watching the football. A number of years ago, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a long-suffering Cronulla Sharks supporter. They say that um, uh, Cronulla Sharks, we, uh, we um, sold the trophy cabinet to buy a wooden spoon cabinet because we lose the competition so much. That was until a few years ago when we got into the grand final. Uh, and a bunch of my mates and I uh, made this deal because the grand final's on Sunday, right? And we need to go to church. So we said, right, we're going to record the grand final. Everyone is going to turn their phones off. And then after church, we'll watch the grand final and we'll have no idea what happened. Problem is, I forgot to turn my phone off. So about full time, my phone in the middle of church just lights up, right? I'm getting like 20 or 30 messages. And of course, I had to look. Two words, sharks win, which was fantastic. It was great. But it was a bit awkward because <laughs> then we went back to my place and watched the grand final. And, and it was really funny because I, I had a confidence in how it was going to end. It didn't make it any less meaningless, but it meant that I had confidence to sit through and watch it. See, some of my other friends got really worried. They got really scared. They wanted to turn it off at times. Uh, they, were, they were concerned that we we're going to lose and, and, and that everything would go pear-shaped. But knowing the end of that football game meant that I had a quiet confidence that it would be okay in the end. See, that is the hope that Jesus Christ brings. That is the difference that the return of Jesus makes in our life. That we know the end, which gives us confidence to stand firm in our faith in Jesus today. Uh, the return of Jesus changes everything. It changes how we view our suffering in our present day. It, it shapes how we view God's justice and what we think of him. Uh, but most important, importantly, it gives us a confidence to keep following Jesus because the promised glory that waits ahead of us. How about I pray that God would help us to keep trusting in Jesus. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for his death and resurrection and the sure and certain hope that he will return. And so, Lord, let the return of Jesus change our perspective, our values and our priorities. Help us to see our present day sufferings in light of his return. And in particular, may the glory of sharing that internal inheritance captivates our hearts so much that we stand firm for him when we suffer. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.